0: Hi, my name is Ida, and my name is Deja, and welcome to Sad Girl Sunday.
1: Hey y'all, how's everyone doing? Welcome to another Sunday with the Sad Girls thank you
0: for tuning in with us
1: on season three episode five
0: yes last episode we got to interview the talented sharon weiss and in today's episode we are talking all about art compassion and healing with rebecca hofberger but before we get into the episode we would love if you could subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review if you are enjoying our episodes and our content
1: This week on the show, we have Rebecca Hoffberger, and she is the founder, director, and principal curator of the American Visionary Art Museum. Her extraordinary vision for the museum was promptly recognized in 1998 by the Urban Land Institute with its coveted National Award for Excellence, making AVAM the first museum ever to be so recognized by the organization. We hope you enjoy today's interview. So, Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on our show today. Um, Before we get started, could you just give a brief introduction and let the listeners know who you are, what do you do, and where you are from?
2: Okay. Well, my name is Rebecca Albin-Hofberger, and I'm the founder and director and the primary curator at the American Visionary Art Museum right in the heart of Baltimore,
0: Maryland. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Rebecca. Um, I honestly, I mean, let's jump right into it. How did you kind of get into art, the art realm, utilizing art as a creative outlet? I mean, honestly, what really led you to the creation of the American Visionary Art Museum? I, I think what I have
2: always been interested in um, is the role that intuition plays in evolutionary thought. Whether it's going to be a cure for AIDS or uh, you know a new a new invention that no one has ever thought of or a new melody that no one's ever sung, I'm very interested in not learned intelligence sitting at the knees of somebody who knows more than you do. But um, not that that's not important, but uh, there hasn't been enough about listening to that that still small voice within. And so I don't come from a museum background. Uh, I did work uh, in different aspects of healing for many years. I studied in Mexico with a healer. Uh, who had never taken an apprentice before. And I got to deliver babies, you know, even though I'm like a quack, you know, technically, but I was really good at it. And, um, you know, I come from a very intuitive family. And so that realm has always been very interesting to me. My mom introduced me early on to Edgar Casey, the Sleeping Prophet, who gave all those wonderful, um, you know, in deep trance, so much information. And as a young woman, I helped uh, bring over Nana Parabia, the head of the Akan religion from Ghana, uh, to establish some centers uh, that still go on. And so. Um, I have a great respect for indigenous people's knowledge and always have. I mean, over 60% of all our pharmaceuticals actually come from ethnobotanists meeting with shamans in some continent and finding out, oh, you know, uh, we, we know about birch bark and aspirin, but it's, it's the whole, you know, enchilada of medicine mostly. And so um, the perception of, 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 of how does someone understand or intuit what something is good for is uh, is fascinating to me. So I used to also be the only woman on the board of directors of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler Ross. She is uh, was a phenomena who who wrote most famously the the book on death and dying, the five stages. But um, but she also brought hospice to America. And until then, like if your mom was dying of breast cancer and you weren't over the age of 12, you weren't getting up to see her, you know, to to be with her. You know, they had these really strict laws that made no sense for people. So um, for me, I wasn't so interested in, in starting a museum in any traditional sense of, in terms of, um, uh, like a cult of object, like because there's a lot of good stuff in the world, but I didn't think it needed more. Uh, so every year since we've opened, I I really prayed for what will speak most to what's needed at that time when it manifests, and and then something will come, and I'm you know, and in record time, I have to pull together a whole complex exhibition while I'm doing 20 other things, and um, it's been. Uh, unbelievable like when when i came up with holy h2o fluid universe we opened there were more class 5 storms than the tsunami in indonesia then in the last week of the show was Katrina, the flooding of New Orleans. And in between, they, uh, they decided, most, most cities are just testing to see if there's like poop in the water, basically, bacteria in water. But uh, London decided to run a mass spectrometer on its public water. And to their horror, they found out that from 50 years of women peeing out um, uh, you know, uh, uh, birth control hormone, uh, which goes right through and gets recycled into the water and all the small molecule neuroleptics like Prozac, that all that gets reconcentrated because there's no mechanism to clean out that stuff. So they realize why the male fish in the Thames were, weren't reproducing. So it's, you know, we live in this closed system with of water that gets recycled and uh, air that gets recycled, you know? And uh, so our shows have, uh, we began with the Tree of Life. Right before um, um, Ada came, I had um, the largest art science climate change exhibition called The Secret Life of Earth. And it dealt a lot also with health implications. Like there are three zip codes in Baltimore City that have record um, high asthma uh, hospital emergency visits. But it's not because the people are in any way inferior, it's because that's where we put all our filthiest you know, incinerators and in industry. So we looked at the environment and its effect on all people, but particularly people who don't have much of a voice. And um, One, one of the things that came out, I love sugar and um, you know, the the, right, because just that little over a degree, extra heat, besides making much more powerful storms um, in, in, in what was always a horrible job to cut sugar cane, because it's always hot and humid and snakes with that little bit more of temperature. It is so oppressive that the average age of the sugar cane workers who have, or multi-generational is now down to 42 years of age in Mexico because the kidneys give out. the body can't uh, when you're that hot and that humid, your your body can't sweat it out. So all that to say that many exhibitions, even when it seems they're on another subject, come back to human well-being.
0: Thank you so much. That was so amazing to hear, not only how it started, but also all of the exhibitions that you've had and how they all kind of come back that overall or overarching idea of well-being, healing, wholeness, what it means to be human. And um, I just really quickly wanted to ask, I was doing a little bit of background research, and I saw that you had gotten really involved in the people encouraging people um, at the Sinai Hospital, and that also kind of led into the art Absolutely. museum. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, because one of the, probably the most exciting exhibition pieces from uh, what Ida had sent me was that kind of anonymous horse dress. So I know I'm sure that has a lot of overlap.
2: It does, and thank you for both picking up on that. And for whatever grace got Ida to come, I just love that, you know? So so this is it. Um, I was working for five and a half years at Sinai Hospital. Uh, You know, the program in the seventies where they started to deinstitutionalize people who may have spent all of their adult life in an institution but who were well enough to go out into community but didn't know how to like pay a a bill, write a check, you know, make a bed, you know, like a lot of just basic skills. So people encouraging people was to give life's um, independent living skills as well as job skills. And I came to be their fundraiser. And I've never been able to f- fundraise until I really believe in something, you know. So I had no background in that other than intuition. But um, I, I grew that program to be like the largest program of that kind uh, with a lot of other people's help um, for Baltimore. But where it, it really begged the question um, of who's sane and who isn't because some of the the former people who had histories of chronic mental illness, like if you were having a bad day, they would be the first to go, oh Rebecca, you know is everything okay and you and others like social workers and stuff, Like, you know, it passed over them. It's really, you know, so I was thinking, okay, we have to redefine what constitutes a worthwhile life, because a lot of these people didn't negotiate everyday reality particularly well, but they were so amazing in other ways. So, um, if you read our seven education goals, which came out of my hand as fast as I could write them down, and have gone to educators—I mean, around the world—even people have stolen them. And I thought, what a great use of theft, you know? And didn't even change a word. But um, the first one is to expand the definition of a worthwhile life, and we we don't preach so much as just kind of throw out some thoughts that regular people might not get exposed to. So in my parenting. And art without a manual—the good, the bad, the horrific, and the sublime of parenting—because you know, um, all sorts of people become give birth to children, and and we said, well, what is it that we prize most? And you know, you could say, oh, the, they went to Harvard, you know, or uh, oh, and they make a lot of money, and they 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 play great tennis, or they smell good, they. And you could still be the most predatory parent imaginable with all those superlatives mm-hmm. in place. So then what we juxtapose was uh, a woman who was a single mom who, who uh, worked, who was developmentally disabled, but high functioning, who worked as the janitor at, at Wendy's. And she gave birth to a really smart little kid. And uh, she couldn't help her with the homework past the third grade. But she was an incredible mother. She knew how to be in this kid's corner and to be proud of her. I mean, like everything you could ask for a parent, this person who, who on the outside, you would say, oh, my gosh, she has a disability. You know, she's a, a single parent. You know, like, how is she going to manage this? She was great. So it, we're always trying to expand the definition of a worthwhile life by illuminating things that people may not have even thought about. and. Um, so if you followed, um, I did The Art of War and Peace Towards an End to Hatred, uh, and then right, 9-11 happened. Um, after uh, uh, after um, uh, you know, that time, too, I did a, a festival on uh, the, the most read poet is you know, Lideen, Malwani you know, Rumi. And my staff actually said, oh, what do you mean? You're going to devote this whole thing to a Muslim poet, right? And I said, yeah, he is the most incredibly wise person who who feeds me. I'm going to do this. And then they loved it. But um, so I did an exhibition um, on on yet another. I should back up and tell you. I tried to see what are the great powers that influence humanity? You could say... uh, sex you could say uh, religion money right
0: yeah.
2: food and so we've looked at almost all of those uh, in different ways but you know none of them are intrinsically good or bad but they magnify intention so the whole museum is a communal look at these big big forces uh, and that's why it's the uh, the the exhibition that's currently up and it's my last of out of 41 is called um, healing. And and what do we mean by that? And the art of compassion and the lack thereof. So what does the world look like without compassion, without a thrust towards healing? And what are the consequences of that? And then what are the consequences of basing money, incarceration, uh, how we treat the earth, how we treat one another? On healing and compassion, and oh, when I do the deep dive, I realize intuitively why I picked to marry those two, and that's because both healing and compassion see something that is suffering that is out of out of its best self, you know, that is um, hurting on some level, and seek to rebalance, to make right, you know, to bring back to its optimal healing um so that's that's that
1: that is so
2: beautiful
1: oh. I love also um, even in the development of the museum the way you have been so thoughtful in regards of who is included in the creation and uh, what type of people you are going to be representing because like you mentioned earlier you know, and as you've been hinting throughout the discussion you're not so like uh I guess like stuck on or you don't get so hyped up about like traditional like forms of meritocracy and people who are achieving like all of these other things but some of the people that you uphold in your space and in the museum it's beautiful because you feel so connected. These are real people who have everyday life experiences. And mm-hmm. so um, I just wonder if you ever got any pushback from your, your I guess, approach of representing people who are traditionally underrepresented, even when it comes to, you know, who, you know, I think um, the portion of the museum that has all of the, the mosaic on it and mm-hmm. like, the youth that you had assist you in uh, putting that up, and then giving them that experience so they can put something down on their resume later, or um, the type of artists that you uphold. Um, mm-hmm. Have you ever had to deal with conflict and like, you know, choosing those people over maybe somebody who's like a more traditionally revered artist or somebody who has like this acclaimed like education?
2: No, no, because right away it's a uh, uh, that we are. It's it's a national museum devoted to intuitive, self taught artistry. We don't say if you have two months of art school that you're damaged goods, but almost, you know. We're looking for people who don't watch themselves be artists uh, so much. Just like my favorite spiritual friends don't watch themselves be spiritual. You know what a drag that is. Um, they just really are. You know, it's like my favorite artists are spending you know twenty five years. Uh, building the garden of Eden in their backyard, not to be get into some hip New York gallery, but because they have a reason to get up every morning. That is so amazing, and it, it their creations are imbued with that kind of devotional thing. Going back to the horse dress, um, that was one of the things that I collected before we even opened our doors. Um, and uh, what is interesting is all this labeling of people, and um, so, so instead of saying a person who happens to have had mental illness, like having I don't know a mole or green eyes or a broken leg or whatever, um, they they would call them the mentally ill. This you know kind of like thing. So the but if you know anything about schizophrenia, it it uh, through it was traditionally de- um, uh, what do you call it um, defined as the listen to this part, inability to organize one's thoughts. So here you have the horse dress. And I wish I'd been there with you to show you some some amazing things about it. So so here's this woman who's branded schizophrenic, doesn't get called by her own name anymore. She's years and years uh, in uh, Shepherd Pratt. She doesn't have access to yarn of her choice. She has to unravel old sweaters and blankets to get the yarn for that dress. And she designs a dress where the um, eyeballs, and you could maybe get a picture of you. I guess it's a live, it's an oral podcast, but where the uh, her breasts are the eyes of a giant horse head and the flared nostrils are down by her ovaries. And there's like a diamond on the horse head. So it's this big horse head across her front, right? But if you look carefully, that one giant horse head using the same eyes there are two other horse heads in profile with a bridle. And this is all crocheted, right? Um, uh, uh, from profile within that large uh, wh- one horse head. So there are two horses within the big horse head. And then in the back where her tail would have been, she's put she's embroidered a tail and down her hips, like the haunches of a hip, you can see this kind of uh, hoof like um, you know, it, uh, like it's coming down to be like legs and a hoof and a hind leg. So when she wore it, she must have felt very powerful, you know. But, you know, to, for me, she like did everything we admire in, uh, you know, a well-known artist like Escher, who does these complex things, except for hers is more interesting. It, she had to crochet it and, she, you know, she, and it had to fit her, you know, so she could wear it. Um, and so... Um, you and know, had to resource the
1: materials, like with what she could find, yeah. you yeah. know, wasn't I, like she could just go to the store
2: and buy whatever she needed. Or just draw it. She had to like really think it out so much. And it's beautifully done. So I'm always uh, interested when you can, um, you know, kind of, you know, uh, disrupt someone's, you know, you know, how the poet Rumi said, conventional thinking is the ruin of our souls, something borrowed we mistake as our own. So um, I think it's really important, uh, particularly when you speak to a lot of young people who have a lot of peer pressure to have agreement, right? With each other, is to is to really champion everybody saying, well, you know, is that true or is that true for me? Do I understand that? And how do I understand something? Um, And so that's been, been great, you know, going back to DJ's um, comment, uh, or, you know, has it ever gotten us in trouble? Um, really not. It's interesting because, um, people, because I started out at people encouraging people were like writing me, oh, I do art and I'm mentally ill. I'm going, well, I hope that makes you, you know, your art makes you happy, but we never had pathology as a criteria to show any work. Uh, you know, my farmer who made the three-ton whirly gig, you know, it was like the sanest human I ever met. And, you know, um, and and I didn't want to show it in a, in a narrow way, like, oh, isn't that wonderful? We're giving a show to the poor, to the mentally ill. Even if it was fabulous, I didn't want the visitors to go away. Oh, that was really cool, but they were all crazy. I, I try to just make it more... Um, liaison, you know, more reason for people to to really hear from people they they might not normally pay attention to. And it's deeply moving in that way. You know, they get to see themselves in maybe their own reaction in a new way. So, um, yeah, thanks for picking up on that. I don't know if you did you see the pair of underpants? She also made herself the floral embroidered silk bloomers that had a little floral penis.
1: Because oh in the God. mental house, I miss that. This yeah, is, I wish, like, just from seeing the dress, I wish I could have met her yeah. just so I could see, like, how she understood the space. I mean, she clearly understood where she was and, like, the pressures of of being in, institutionalized because of the way she made that dress. And, yeah. and even in the description, oh, I I really almost like I had to hold myself back from crying, but it's a form of rebellion, and mm-hmm. you know, being able to like call out the people around you and say like I'm watching you too through this piece of art, right. and then to wear that every day, um, and and to choose how, like to she give, giving herself back the power of choice to choose what she wants to wear, uh, I just was yeah. like, oh, this person, this person should be my friend. <laughs> and, oh. and, Well, you know
2: what, maybe, you know, that's in that way you honor, in the way that is still within our power, you, you honor her soul, but Mm -hmm. you also make bigger the freedom for other people who may, you know, I mean, that's why I brought up Britney Spears. And did you read the hysteria hysteria, um, essay, right? You know, because I mean, for a long time, women, you know, uh, the word for hysteria comes from the word the in Greek for for womb. And they actually used to remove the womb of women who had mental illness, like, oh, well, we'll fix her, you know, and that'll make her better. You know, stupid and and dangerous stuff. And, um, you know, uh, so we look at, at Britney Spears. I mean, you know, this is a woman who's like the cash cow for this whole, you know, huge group of people, right? And she's together enough to get on stage regularly to do four years in Vegas, never miss a concert, you know, and 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 they're saying, oh, you can't even take that IUD out of your body. I don't give you permission. I mean, you know, it's it's something. So I'm in a in wonderful way, um, it's that these things are now coming out more and more, you know, um, and it, it's a terrible time in so many ways. I've never seen so much Uh, express almost like a vomiting of hatred Uh, and it's not just here I mean it's kind of everywhere but I also feel like maybe it's the last purging that's what I hope before there's uh, an evolutionary leap and and I have reasons to believe that that will be underway in a couple years I really I mean just a couple couple years not like a long time Mm -hmm. Um, because I see some other things happening that haven't manifested fully yet you well, no. know the other thing is this um so uh, this is funny because of who, who you are so um a big thing has gotten how many women are represented in museums blah 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 and um and so the local uh local artists uh, i forget um the local two museums big older established museums um the the older one the walters had i think less than three percent but you know, they show suits of armor and stuff like that. Um, and then the the contemporary museum, they only had, I know it was like I don't even know if it was 27%, but they decided they would try to do better. and And so the local journalist who knows us and loves us said, well, Rebecca, you know, how many women, artists are in your collection I said well I don't know I only pick people because you know I think they have something to say I don't like oh you have a vagina you're in you know uh you know like um I, I've never I will never do an all women's show because I wouldn't want to be part of something just because I'm I happen to be a woman I would want it to be because I had something to say that was valid for you know people and um so um uh, you know I, I started to count up And we were like, we were like 47%. We were close to 50%. And we, but we we didn't try because it wasn't from this, uh, oh.
1: Numbers or trying to measure out. I love, and I think, um, you know, your mission is really coming from your soul. Like I I 100% see how, I mean, with good intention, people want to have data, analyze things and measure things out obviously because traditionally like even yeah when you look at those museums they don't have the numbers but it's also like do you even have to it doesn't have to be that complicated right it's like who are the who are the people leading those structures and institutions and what what are their intentions and then your numbers will naturally show your intentions Right. And, and I love, love, love everything about your museum, because even as I'm walking through, I'm not like counting like how many works are done by like women of color or right. queer people, because every piece was speaking to a human experience that goes beyond those
2: labels. You know, I thank you for saying that because it is true. I mean, and but early on, like, you know, there were real things that you couldn't in this country marry who you wanted to, Mm -hmm. you know, you couldn't, you know, there were so many no, no, no's. So. From the very beginning, we would do programs or we do over 100 weddings a year in non-COVID years. And uh, we were doing same-sex um, marriage ceremonies. Before it was legal, they would get get the license in D.C. and come to get married at us because we have that 10-foot statue of divine. So, you know, it was very welcoming. But, you know, um, I we've had uh, gangs of... Um, of uh, Hell's Angels come in on motorcycles. Um, And we've had, uh, you know, a a lot of very devout Muslims come and I always go, hey guys, come over here, you know? Like, I love that it, I want it to be a safe, welcoming place for Mm -hmm. everybody. And um, so the only, I I don't think we've really had, um, with one artist, um, it had to do with her weight uh, who who had liked us, but it was uh, super sensitive. I wanted uh, a piece that she had to be included in the food show mm-hmm. and she like threw a tantrum because she had just been dumped by a woman um, who, who she loved, whose children had made fun of her weight. And so she was like overly sensitive. So I met, I, you know, like you never know. and Sometimes people have a raw place and you have no intention of hurting it and you do something that they, you know, but um, it's done with a lot of love, and I, I kind of um, we run a staff that are very talented. But it's, it's like a little SWAT team because we have the smallest budget of all thirteen cultural majors in the state of Maryland, very little money. The actually the um, Reginald Lewis Museum for Maryland's African American History and Art uh, has a four million dollar budget, and they've gone through eight directors, I think, and. 10 or 12 years, you know, and they just, they now have a good one, I think. But, um, we only had last year, our budget was 2.8 million. And we got Baltimore's best museum over the museums that have almost a $20 million operating budget. You know, we got best tourist attraction, best building. And I picked an architect who had never wasn't licensed, had never built a building by age 50, you know? So it's that leap of faith. And that's why I encourage people to, uh, to mine, even though we're a national museum, we really looked at where is the talent here? Because if you, if you go with local talent that you see something in, they'll work their heart out for you. If you go to Frank Gehry, you're going to pay Frank Gehry uh, prices, you're going to get his B team, you won't even get him, and they don't care whether it really works for you or so much as a building, because you know they're on to the next project, it's like a big sculpture for them. And then you get the mistakes like uh, at the Walt Disney Center in LA, that they designed something on CAD and then it blinds everybody and they have to put like a big bandage on what was this, you know, designed to be this like luminous skin, you know, but nobody walked over the site and saw that the primary east-west traffic were gonna be blinded if they did that, you know? So I'm I'm very interested in uh, kind of bringing more logic and remember the contemporary art world is is really, uh, governed, uh, you know, that's where the big prices are by the, it's almost like stocks. So if you're a wealthy, wealthy person, and you want to have a serious contemporary collection, there are only a few galleries in the world that sell the the major, major stuff. And they advise you, oh, you have to have some Richard Serra sculptures, you know, if you're going to be serious, and you have to have, you know, they tell you, and it's like stock, it's like a stock portfolio it's not because you fell absolutely in love with this thing. So my favorite collectors are ones that um, can walk into a flea market and find the one treasure. They can walk in the woods and find this gnarled piece of wood that is so unbelievable and and they value it those are the real people who are the nourishers, you know, Uh, and, and their collections are like the best of the best, you know, just like the cone sisters who collected what became the core collection of the Baltimore museum of art, you know, these lesbian sisters who were friends with people that were not accepted um, uh, artists as yet, but they saw how exciting the world was. And they, they had the conviction of their own taste. And I think what's great about the work, the artistry you're doing in a podcast like this is you're helping people, um, you know, come to understand what is it that they really believe and think. And that's a high art, you know?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it is so apparent, this labor of love that you've dedicated to the museum. And I think that um, in your pursuit and this like very genuine authenticness that shines through, you have become, like you said, a really a safe haven for so many different individuals from a multitude of backgrounds. And I mean, I know we've talked about this briefly, but I would love to hear a little bit more about how you really think that art can be a source of healing for underrepresented groups. I know that that is really a huge thing that you and the art museum dedicate your time and energy and effort into.
2: I recommend you read a book by a man who has a very difficult to spell last night name. It's High, but the book is called Flow. Mm-hmm. And why that's important is that um, he did a, a multi-decade um, a study on Chicago Art Institute stu- students. And he found out that the ones who were in it and like, uh, you know, when I get out of here, it's expensive school. You know, I, I need to be in the top galleries. That's my goal. I want to be seen and I want to be sold and all that. And then there was this little subgroup that said, you know why it's called Flow? He said, the reason I make art is that I am addicted to the high I get when I'm just in the zone of creativity. And even if nobody ever wants my work or saw my work, I cannot give this up. it's it's such a natural. so he 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 looked at them and all sorts of other in-between motivations. and he found that in five years the people who really was important for them to be in the right galleries and stuff weren't even making art anymore. they were they were gone, you know And uh, not right away, but in like thirty years later, the people who had risen to the top were the ones who were who were so. Into an honest need to make. So, what I d- don't want you to think it's not like um, a lot of people go away from our museum and are inspired to go try to make art. We do workshops, and you know it's great. But that's not my goal because I I think that people who work to better to better life for others that they're the greatest artists because it's so hard to do, particularly in this world. So. You know, like uh, the great civil rights activist Julian Bond and his wife Pam Horowitz were the only museum they put in their will. You know, um, uh, Patch Adams, the, the man who has fought so hard for uh, medicine to be a universal right, not a privilege. You know, as not so I bring in all these people. I worked with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Rosie O'Donnell in the most amazing way. I'm so thankful for him. He just had his birthday, uh, he turned 90 on October 7th, but he came and I did an exhibition because I believe so much, the only holiday we've ever had on a Monday where we, from the very beginning, that we're open and we get like 5,000 people that come is uh, in celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King, because I think it's terrible that as Americans, like like we take off for that day and then it's like discounts on bras and, you know, and washing machines, right? You know, like one like, well, instead of, you know, understanding, you know, almost all of his speeches were just unbelievable. So we do this like huge celebration with tons of cake that gets inhaled <laughs> by thousands of people, like in seconds. Um, we, we, and we invite performance artists and spoken word and whatever, and it's free to everybody. But um, you know how he said the most important thing was content of character for all people. So I did an exhibition inspired by that. And invited Archbishop Tutu to take a big part. And it was uh, on character, big letters character. But the name of the exhibition was Race, Class, and Gender. Three things that contribute zero to character because being a schmuck is an equal opportunity for everybody. And if you think about it, you know, like I just feel like there needs to be much more of an emphasis on just goodness you know and civility and kindness and and uh, the outer lab labels, I'm sure that you if you look at who's hurt you most in this life, it might be a person who looks like you. You know it's not like you know so and 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 conversely somebody who really helped you might not look like you at all, right? You know, so you just, you know, they're not enough great human beings that you can afford to be picky on anything else. I feel like just like, you know, champion, you know, the people. And that's why I champion in this show people who were born into very hateful families who promoted that rhetoric Mm -hmm. um, and who got out because, you know, we've been lucky. We got, I'm sure you've had fabulous parents, Um, but not everybody has that. And for them, to embrace the highest ideals of one human family. Did, by the way, did you get to see Ada, the Esther and uh, the dream where I just I suppose with what happened in Rwanda and what we did to Native Americans with what happened in the Holocaust? Um,
1: did you the, no, not with what happened in Rwanda, but I did see the the piece that Esther did with the quilts. And yes. um, in- I, I walked through that whole area, but um, I don't think I caught the comparison. Uh, part
2: um, yeah, there's a, a film uh, and Lily Ye went to uh, 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 I think it's Regergio the the uh, survivors camp in Rwanda uh, and m- remember 800,000 people were mostly hacked to death in just 100 days before that it was that's you know almost a million people just so most people lost almost everybody in their family and so the survivors they they used to dig. Um, mass graves and then uh, they would have to go to the market and, and knowing that the graves of their loved one were under their feet. So Lily Yeh, who's like the Mother Teresa of the art world, L-I-L-Y-Y-E-H, I mean, she she's there's nobody like her. She uh, went and with like no money, she took cinder black, uh, blocks and paint and made this incredible uh, like uh, adobe covered colorful, shrined for the the loved ones and then they carefully dug up all the bones and wrote uh, with strips of of cloth like love notes and and wrapped all the bones with love um, and placed them in this place of reverence and it was such a healing thing for the community who were still blindsided that their you know that their neighbors um, uh, you know, could could have bought into such wildflower of hate, hatred after being neighbors all their lives, you know? So, um, you know, Mark Twain said something, and I'm paraphrasing, he said something like, all I need to know is that there's a human being involved and that's bad enough for me. You know, he said it jokingly, right? But it's like, you know, on some level, you know, um, what I'm sad about is what I, I have cable television and there are like three networks who 24 seven do true crimes, usually about a woman being, uh, or a child being abducted, raped, tortured, and uh, discarded, you know, murdered and discarded. And they, but it's 24 seven. And we have, as you saw in the back, we have one of the highest rates of serial uh, killers, you know, like why, why have we become so, so very violent? And so we just pose those questions, but give the statistics, you know. Um, And I don't know, I'm really excited when I meet people like you both because I see the light in in you both. And do you both have any feeling that you may have lived in it before?
1: Thank you all for listening to part one of our art and healing episode with Rebecca Hofberger. We will be posting part two on November 14th, so be sure to check back with us in two weeks to dive deeper into the discussion and find out what our response is to Rebecca's inquiry on living in a past lifetime. As always, you can listen to this episode and more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and more. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review and follow us on Instagram. That's all, and have a great night.